listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Welcome once again to Radio Free Philosophy. My name is Kevin Brown. And I'm Bob Uricu. And today we're going to take on uh, the question of God's existence in a slightly different way than we have done before by uh, using a quiz that many of our students have taken and are familiar with and have talked about called the Battleground God. And don't they just love that quiz, Kevin? Yeah. Uh, Some of them seem to get uh, quite worked up because I I think they mistakenly think that the quiz is trying to tell them that their beliefs are wrong. Actually, it's only trying to show the consistency of their beliefs. Yeah, and we might want to say something about why consistency is important. And it's different than the question of whether your beliefs are true or false, which the quiz really in some sense cannot address. Uh, But we can address whether all your beliefs can go together or whether they inherently contradict each other, which is the basic idea behind consistency. Sure. It's irrational to tolerate a logical inconsistency. And if you can live with that, there might be something wrong with your thinking. Right. And so that's what the quiz is really designed to do. And as I try to stress uh, when I do this in my classes, You can be an atheist and get through the quiz with a perfectly consistent set of beliefs, but you can also be a theist, a religious Mm -hmm. believer, a Christian, and get through the quiz with a consistent set of beliefs. Uh, You can be an agnostic. Yes. Uh, In fact, there's room in the quiz for being an agnostic. You can say, I don't know the existence of God. Right. And so so, um, hopefully uh, we can show by going through this that, that the quiz is not biased against one particular view or the other. Uh, in fact, the first question asks whether you believe in the existence of God, uh, and so you're free to choose yes or no. And I've tried a little experiment, actually, uh, to be truthful, to see what would happen going either way. And I was able to come out with consistent beliefs going either way. So in other words, if you start by saying God exists, you can end up with a perfectly consistent set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And many students complain about this this quiz or, or this exercise forcing them to, into positions that they don't want to take. And a lot of, a lot of, it, uh, a lot of the complaints say that this is an anti-theistic or anti-God quiz or exercise. But I agree with you. I don't think that it's that way at all. Although I could see how y- y- you could have trouble um, maintaining consistency because there are some questions that, that can get you into trouble. Uh, one of them is the question about God being able to do anything uh, that he or she chooses. Uh, the quiz, by the way, oh, it's refers the, to God as, a, God as a she. And it's done purposely. Right. To kind of throw us out of our uh, normal convention, I take it. Sure. We have such an anthropomorphic idea of God that we must, in a male-dominated society, we say God must be male. Yeah, and probably philosophically it would be better to refer to God as gender neutral. But and to be faithful to the religious tradition, it would be much better to refer to God as she because for most of the existence of mankind as a religious being, people have thought of God as she. All the great fertility religions of the ancient world had 
female gods and goddesses. Right. Certainly uh, most polytheistic mm -hmm. cultures uh, had both uh, male and female gods, and in some cases the female gods had more power and respect uh, than the mm -hmm. male gods. They could do more because the female was considered to be more powerful, more fertile. That's right. Able to give birth, able to generate life. Okay, so maybe what's what the best way? Anyway, right? hmm? What good are men anyway? That's right. Um, maybe the best thing to do is just go through each of these questions in turn. We'll spend more time on the ones that are perhaps more contentious. Funny you should suggest that. I was going to suggest the same thing myself. That first question really throws people. If God doesn't exist, then there's no basis for morality. Do you agree or disagree with that? And most people want to say, of course there's no basis for morality. But think about it. What is the basis for morality? Is it the Bible? Is it revealed religion? Or is it human reason? Of course, many philosophers would say it would have to be human reason, precisely mm -hmm. because this is the only universal trait that we can all rely on to come to some answers to difficult social questions. Rationality is the only thing we have in common. Right, because so, some people may not uh, agree that the Bible is correct. Even for those who do, you, you run into problems here because of what the Bible seems to suggest is perfectly moral behavior uh, that, as Richard Dawkins would say, any civilized person in the 20th century would have to reject the notion that you can um, uh, stone someone um, oh, for very minor of offenses. Of course. So um, now, uh, it, it's certainly possible to get through the quiz consistently by agreeing or disagreeing uh, with that one. As long as you're consistent. As long as you're consistent, right. Uh, agreeing with that question might force you to have to disagree with something later on to maintain that consistency, and that's where the trouble would come about. Mm -hmm. And another question that can easily get you in trouble is the next one. Any being which is right to call God must be free to do anything. Now you could have a field day with that question. Is God free to do anything, or does God live in the narrow constraints that people impose on God? And uh, as I understand the philosophical notion of omnipotence, it does not necessarily imply being able to do absolutely anything. Uh, the concept of omnipotence certainly uh, implies being able to do quite a lot that humans couldn't do. Sure. But I don't think it implies being able to do things that are logically contradictory. Right. Or ontically contradictory. Is God, for example, free not to be God? Yeah, and I'm sh sure even uh, many believers would say, well, no, he's not free to do that. Well, if he's not free to do one thing, then you have to disagree with that statement. Mm -hmm. And then the next one uh, asks the question whether uh, you agree or disagree with the claim that any being which it is right to call God must want there to be as little suffering in the world as possible. And that raises the big question of the, the omnibenevolence of God. Is God all good? And if God is all good of course at the immediate problem of evil. How can God permit suffering? Related to the question about being free to do anything is the question of whether it is right to call, any, any being that is right to call God must have the power to do anything. Again a, a question about uh, omnipotence. Exactly. But we have in geological time large periods, such eras we call great extinctions. Whole just about 90% of all beings that have ever existed have gone out of ex existence, sometimes on a massive scale, due to climate change. We probably got one of those coming up about mid-century. So, does God want the mass extinction of whole species? 
Could God tolerate the mass extinction of all humankind? Or could God uh, do anything about it? Could God um, prevent those things from happening that have been set in motion? Sure. So interesting. And interesting that you mentioned the the uh, mass extinctions in the past because that uh, directly relates to the next statement. Oh, uh, yes. Evolutionary theory may be false in some details, but it is essentially true. And, of course, I think the exercise is playing on the word theory, and I'm not sure it uses it correctly. A theory in science is an explanation of the facts, and a lot of people dismiss evolution as a theory because it's only a theory. That's not what science means by theory. It's the best hypothesis that covers the available data. Right, and it's um, it, it's something that, um, well, as far as I know, any reputable scientist would, would agree with that claim. Mm -hmm. There may be some details of, of the theories we have it now that turn out to be wrong, but the basic idea of descent with natural selection mm -hmm. is uh, probably very definitely going to turn out to be true in some form. That's what the evidence suggests. Even if you have a firm inner conviction that it's false, which uh, I use the phrase deliberately because that leads us to the next yes. question. And this one, I think, is the one that causes the most problems in the whole quiz. Mm -hmm. uh, it is justifiable to base one's beliefs about the external world on a firm inner conviction, regardless of the external evidence or lack of it, for the truth or falsity of these convictions. And I suspect that if you, if you say evolutionary theory is not essentially true, that is, you disagree with the question about evolutionary theory, you, you pretty much have to agree with this one mm. to be consistent. Mm -hmm. But then you're just setting up a problem that's going to come up in several questions, which we'll get to. Right. Because the question is not so much about believing in God, but what you believe about the external world. Right. And whether it's justifiable based on your own feeling or inner conviction. We'd look askance at anyone who says, I have my own theory about how life came to be. Yeah, well, we should. I, I don't know that everybody looks askance at that, but I, I think we should. Yes, it flaunts. Uh, now, see, some people will say, but that's exactly what scientists are doing. They just say, well, I have my own theory. But, of course, what they fail to recognize is that any given scientist to advocate the theory they're advocating has had it put through the crucible of peer review quite extensively. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just their own theory. It's it's a theory based on quite a lot of uh, uh Objection, conjecture, comparison, testing, uh, debate, and it's the theory that's arisen as a result of all that interchange among other scientists. So any given scientist, uh, no matter who it is, is not simply making claims based on their own firm inner conviction, however firm that conviction uh, might be. We talked about the market of marketplace of ideas in one of our previous broadcasts, but there's, a, there's a, certainly a marketplace of ideas in science and some ideas that are too absurd to be even even discussed don't do well in the marketplace of ideas. They're, yeah, they're vetted out by uh, young earth creationism. Uh, young earth creationism is one that leaps to mind that not doesn't get any traction at all. Not at all. And it's not because scientists are anti-religion. It's just they're anti-theories that don't account for the facts that we observe. There's no evidence. That's right. Now, some people will be quick to say, ah, uh, yes, but scientists don't know everything. And then that raises a question of whether God knows everything. That's, Very that's good the next transition. question. Yeah, I'm trying to do good segues today. Yes. So any being that it is right to call God must know everything that there is to know. Well, that's a good statement about the omniscience of God, that attribute that's been given to God for centuries, that God knows everything. 
And this, of course, not only entails that God knows everything that has happened, but also everything that will happen as well. Which so if God knows what's happening, and God is morally good, and God is all-powerful, that's a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, why wouldn't God prevent things that he knows to be immoral that are coming up? Very good. And, and we could transition to the next statement. Torturing innocent people is morally wrong. Now, there are some people in our administration that might not agree with that, but if God could foresee that some innocent person is being accused of uh, terroristic acts and is about to be tortured at Guantanamo Bay, why doesn't God stop it? Right, and uh, this, this of course also ties in with an earlier question, whether God's existence is connected with the basis for morality. Mm -hmm. Could torturing innocent people be morally wrong even in the absence of the existence of God. And we'll see later, we could even switch that around, could God make torturing innocent people a virtue? Right, that, that we'll see that later. a huge problem. Yes. And this far into the quiz, probably most people have uh, managed to come through unscathed without having to uh, uh, face any particular contradictions. But the next question begins a pretty steep downhill slide into oh, yeah. the potential for lots of contradictions because uh, it's asking again about evidence and the connection between evidence and belief. If despite years of trying, no strong evidence or argument has been presented to show that there is a Loch Ness Monster, it is rational to believe that such a monster does not exist. Sure. Um. If no strong evidence has ever been presented that there are werewolves or vampire human-like creatures, it's entirely rational to believe that such beings don't exist. And, of course, the problem this is going to raise is if it's rational to disbelieve in the existence of those beings because there's no evidence, no strong evidence, mm -hmm. then isn't it equally rational to withhold one's belief in the existence of God? Right if there's no strong evidence. And of course, many people are gonna say, well, yes, it's perfectly rational to accept that the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist, but it's not rational to draw the same conclusion about God. At this point in the quiz, many people get that first direct hit. That's right. Uh, because even though they've uh, probably uh, disagreed with the question that it's justifiable to base one's beliefs about the external world on a firm inner conviction, uh, doing so about God is just another example of, mm -hmm. uh, of doing that. Well, speaking of God, um, we, when we discuss the existence of God, we discuss the arguments, especially the argument by design, or the teleological argument, that there's a purpose in all human life. There's a purpose to the universe. It's been designed to have a purpose. But what about people who die of horrible, painful diseases? They die for some higher purpose yeah, this is the next uh, uh, question. Uh, do, do they need to die in such a way for some higher purpose? Not such a heavy question. Perhaps we could think about that during the break. Good idea. Some thoughts from John Cleese. Some people try to live the ideal of a scientific life, studying everything before they do anything, making decisions only after they have mastered all the facts. A friend of mine even made the choice of a dog a matter of scientific study, reading books and consulting experts on which breed would be right for him. But the dog he chose bit him, no doubt to remind him that if love 
feeling, and the art of the hunch are good advisors, we may not have to make a science of everything. A message from the Philosophers of America, celebrating 100 years of thought. So here we are, back from the break, and what is this higher purpose that suffering gives or enables? What, what point is it to have a child die of malnutrition? Yeah, this is one of the um, uh, very common explanations to the problem of evil, which we'll be discussing uh, a little bit later. But it, it, it strikes me as potentially very unconvincing to the person who's actually suffering. To the person who's not yet suffered, it might seem like a very good explanation. Why is there so much evil in the world? Well, because the evil is serving some higher purpose. It's so easy to look on someone's hospi- at uh, someone in a hospital bed and look down at them and say, you know, there's a reason for all this. But the per- person undergoing excruciating pain just can't quite see it. That's so right. And certainly the child suffering from leukemia uh, can't quite see that either. Or the Holocaust victims. Uh, hmm. So the, the quiz gives us an opportunity to say this is a true or false statement. And if you say it's true, that, then what, what you're doing, this is what is called theodicy. That's right. You're justifying the, the, the actions of God before people. And it strikes me that one of the potential problems here is if you say this statement is true, though you said torturing innocent people is morally wrong, is also true, mm-hmm. then you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Because if, if it's true that, that people who die of horrible, painful diseases need to die in such a way for some higher purpose, it's not too far of a stretch to say that the people who are being tortured are fulfilling a higher purpose as well. And so it strikes me that that could potentially be maybe not a direct contradiction, but certainly a potential problem uh, with consistency, especially if you um, answer uh, a certain way on the next question about whether God could make things that are now considered sinful to become morally acceptable and vice versa. Sure. Could God reverse the moral order? Yeah, so... God make lying a virtue or stealing a virtue instead of... Right, because I suspect that when many people say torturing innocent people is morally wrong is true, I suspect they mean there's something intrinsically wrong about mm. that. Not simply wrong because God said it was wrong. If if it's only wrong because God said it was wrong, then it could certainly very quickly be made right by God saying it's right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people misunderstand this question to, to be that God would actually do this. The question is not asking whether you think God would do this, simply whether it's possible. It's a could, not a would. That's, That's right. right. And Bear in mind that if you've answered previously that God has the power to do anything, absolutely anything, then you have to agree with this, whether you think it sounds good or not. If you're consistent. That's right. Yeah. You can't say God must be free to do anything and then say that this statement is false. That's a, that's a blatant inconsistency, never mind how you've uh, answered the question about torture. Now, for most people, this, this quiz represents a challenge to people's faith. And I guess it would be, in a sense, uh, one of the questions asked, or the statements made, is that it's foolish to believe in God without certain irrevocable proof that God exists. But in our broadcasts on the arguments for and against the existence of God, we, we could not really muster absolute irrevocable evidence, incontrovertible evidence, that proves that God exists. But I don't know that that necessarily means it would be foolish to believe. 
because the standard here to me seems seems very high, even much higher than than scientists use uh, when they're determining whether uh, to believe in in a theory like evolution or, or, or relativity or quantum mechanics. Sure, the word certain is used in that statement. Yeah, there's no certainty in science. That's right. So I think you could get away uh, here with with answering that it's not foolish uh, and maintain your your consistency. Exactly. That's good. And then on the subject of argument, the next one uh, is going to be a potential uh, problem for some people. As long as there are no compelling arguments or evidence that show that God does not exist, atheism is a matter of faith, not rationality. Now, believers have a hard time with that, but they must understand that an atheist not having incontrovertible proof of his or her position must make an act of faith that God does not exist. And so an atheist might have as much faith as a theist or a believer. That's right. That's right. And something else to notice here is that, the, the and this is not a trivial semantic difference, the wording has changed from this question to the previous one. The previous question asks about uh, certain irrevocable proof. This question simply asked about compelling arguments or evidence. There's a big difference in those words. That's right. And uh, you might say, well, if there are no compelling arguments, then it's rational to uh, disbelieve. But that's different than saying that there are no certain or oh, irrevocable yes, arguments. Mm -hmm. So then the quiz leads us to firm inner convictions again. And we have the case of the serial rapist Peter Sutcliffe, who had this self-same firm inner conviction that God was talking to him, and God wanted him to rape and murder prostitutes. Was he justified? So many people misinterpret this question straight off by saying, well, God would not say to anybody to rape and murder prostitutes. It seems to me that this question is not asking anything about God at all. Mm -mm. It's asking about whether you can take a firm inner conviction and be justified in acting on that. And that's where the problem lies. It's not a, it, this question is not implying that God would or has ever uh, made such a request of, of anybody. Uh, the question is simply, if you have a firm inner conviction that God is doing this, is that enough to justify your carrying out those actions? Oh, sure. Just after the uh, terrorist attacks of September 11th, there was scrawled on a wall in New York City, this graffito, God, spare us from those who have firm inner convictions about you. Yeah, because firm inner convictions can be used to justify all kinds of uh, uh, troubling Mm -hmm. actions. So this this question as of now seems fairly innocuous uh, because many people will say well of course that's not justified at all but as we'll see in a moment this is going to create the probably the biggest contradiction in, in the whole quiz mm -hmm. but we have to wait for that. Uh, first we have to address the question of whether God would have the freedom to create square circles or make 1 plus 1 equal 72. Sure, there's the old conundrum again of the uh, can, if God is all-powerful, can God make a rock so big that she can't lift it? Right. And a lot of people will say, well, in fact, I've seen, seen people respond to this by saying, well, square and circle are just words. So I mean, since they don't have any intrinsic meaning, uh, you could just make the word square refer to circles and the word circle refer to square, but that's not really what this question is asking. No. It's not asking a question about wording. It's asking a question about the, the entity. Could God make 
a square circle, a circle that is actually a square, never mind what you call it. And so again, this is getting back to the, to the question of omnipotence. Could an omnipotent being uh, do absolutely anything? And that involves a logical contradiction, a paradox. Could God make a paradox? That's right. Um, and as we've seen before, this is a potential for, for a fairly major contradiction. Um, because if you want to say that God can do anything at all, then it seems like you have to agree with this. But it's very likely that you disagreed with the question about God being able to make sinful things moral and vice versa. And so there's your contradiction. You cannot say that God has the omnipotence to create square circles, but be restricted from making sinful things moral. Mm-hmm. An out-and-out contradiction. Sure, sure. So that transitions us to the last question. Yeah, and the one that really uh, spells big trouble. It is justifiable to believe in God if one has a firm inner conviction that God exists, regardless of the external evidence or lack of it, for the truth or falsity of the conviction that God exists. And I suspect that the vast majority of people uh, who are theists who take the quiz will immediately agree with that statement. Sure. Thus making them contradict an earlier answer where they said that Peter Sutcliffe couldn't do the same thing. Right. They sounded awful like, a lot like Tertullian, the second century Christian theologian, who was reputed to have said, credo quia absurdum est, I believe because it is absurd. That's right. And my question is, if you can believe one thing because it's absurd, how come I can't believe something else because it's absurd <laughs> right. as well? I mean, how do you draw the standard? How do you draw the line between things that we should be believing, even though they're absurd? I would be very quick to concede that it's absurd for Peter Sutcliffe to believe that God is telling him to rape and murder prostitutes. But if he's doing so based on a firm inner conviction, then he has to be justified in his belief if you're justified in your belief based on a firm inner conviction. It doesn't matter what the belief is at that point. It's the standard that the question is really asking about. That's right. And I can hear some in our audience groaning at the intricacies of all this. But it might be that battleground God gives them an opportunity to think through their faith probably for the first time in their life. Very few people give methodical, rational examination to their beliefs. And most people don't look for inconsistencies. And then having found them, many many people will say, okay, so what? So (laughs) my belief is inconsistent. If Tertullian is right, then I should be proud of that. Then, then we have a problem, don't we? Because if you admit that it's okay for your beliefs to be consistent, don't you have to agree that everybody else's beliefs can be inconsistent as well? Sure. I mean, I suspect that there might be something passing inconsistent about people who believe in the Quran flying uh, planes into buildings. Mm-hmm. But if it's okay for my belief to be inconsistent, then it has to be okay for them too. Yes. So this quiz or this exercise has far-reaching implications. Uh, Yeah, because inconsistency, I don't think, is one of those things you can just restrict to one area of life. Well, it's okay for me to be inconsistent in my religious beliefs, but everything else should be consistent. Why? Why would you make that claim? And how can you defend it? If you're giving up consistency in one area, I don't see how you can not give it up in every other area as well and admit that pretty much anything goes anywhere. Sure. And there are some of our students who have complained that this quiz is... um is anti-religious and threatens their faith. But I see it from the uh, viewpoint of the great Saint Anselm in the 11th century, who, who defined this kind of thinking about 
religion, philosophical thinking about religion as fides querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. That's right. He famously begins his ontological proof with a prayer, mm -hmm. uh, thus dispelling any possible idea that he has any doubts at all about whether he's going to be able to prove the existence of God. I mean, he beseeches God to give him the power to uh, be intellectually rigorous in his proof of God's existence. So instead of threatening faith, this battleground God exercise could actually make the foundations of one's faith more firm, more solid. Right, because if you actually have a consistent basis for your beliefs, not only are they more defensible, uh, they might uh, be more enticing to others to believe. I'm not sure how you could sell somebody on believing an inherently contradictory set of beliefs. Sure. So you see, rather than attack religion, we have given a firmer foothold for it, for all who have ears to hear. Excellent.